1: I think the biggest thing that drew me to the program here obviously is the mission to work with rural individuals underserved and I want to stay here I'm same goal as mine I want to practice here and give back to my community so it really just fits very well with
0: me. Appalachia Meets World a podcast about place and perspective but always Appalachia and don't forget Will tonight's episode is powered by SOAR Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World. We're back. It's another week. It's Will and Neil. What up, brother? What's going on? I heard you well, had a little frost. It's kind of a somber week here, Will. You know, it's the the week after the Worldwide Chicken Fest. <laughs> and, uh, we're just kind of trying to get back into the swing of things, you know. Big letdown after the year-long build-up. You kind of you kind of relax a little, and, and uh, things just come and they go, you know. How much of a relax? Did, did they relax a, a one week and then start back for next year? Start back up? Oh yeah, the planning, planning starts immediately. Planning planning committee starts immediately. They'll jump back on the train, get ready for next year. You know, sometime next week. I, I won't ask you if you attended or not, but maybe next year we can both attend. I hope so, Will. Hopefully we can win the uh, lookalike. <laughs> what was it called? Contest. Lock. The flogging? Flock? Flock a lock? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hashtag flock. Family flock contest. What else is going on? Anything? Not a whole lot today. Just uh, looking forward to this episode. I got a couple of App News tidbits. You want to hear about them? Uh, Yeah, let's hear it. Again, rocking another festival this week. It's the Appalachian Big Ideas Festival that the Foundation for Appalachia, Kentucky is partnering with to put on in Hazard. It started... Yesterday, September 29th, and runs through October 1st. I think I mentioned it maybe last week, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. But it's yeah, entirely entirely free. It's got a really good lineup of speakers. Nick Jamerson and the Morning Jays are going to play. I know I mentioned that. Uh, there's a lot of people that's going to be there. A lot of interesting things to talk about. I know they're going to have one session on touring people in regards to the flood relief and flood recovery efforts to see how people can help, to see how people can support those efforts. So it's a pretty neat idea. It's a brand new festival. It's called the Big Ideas Festival, the Appalachian Big Ideas Festival in Hazard. Should be a fun event. The other thing I wanted to mention, we've had co-field development on the show before. Since then, I know we mentioned they won the Build Back Better Challenge 62 million dollars were awarded for their project that they have there but one of the things that they're doing this coming week they're partnering with Marshall University to host the Appalachian Social Enterprise Summit it's October 3rd and 4th it's in Huntington I think it's on Marshall's campus it kicks off at 5 p.m. on Monday October the 3rd with a farm-to-table dinner It has several keynote speakers. One of those is the federal co-chair, Gail Manchin. But also, it's going to focus on social enterprise. I think some of the topics are why is social enterprise critical for Appalachia to flourish? Is Appalachia fertile ground for social enterprise? And how can business, NGOs, and capital work together for social enterprise? So that's the third and fourth. There's a lot going on. You can check out the website. The Marshall's website at marshall.edu and search for the social enterprise summit. Sounds like a great event, Neil. Yeah, you got we got some news for you this week. Well, let's hear it. Big, big birthday coming up. Yeah, October 1st. Getting old quick, 21st birthday tomorrow. Yes, sir. That's that's app newsworthy, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How are you celebrating? <sighs> Watch the cats at some point. Watch the cats. All right. Great birthday. Just want to say happy birthday, man.
2: Appreciate it.
0: One other thing I wanted to mention, we've mentioned this before, but ARC came out with their annual update to their chart book. You can check that out at ARC's website, ARC.gov, and search for the chart book. And it's got tons of data, updated data about the Appalachian region, which is a, important, obviously, for policymaking. But one of the things I wanted to highlight is that uh, the Appalachia region's population increased to 26.1 million, but it's a 2% increase, which sounds awesome for the region. However, if you look at it a little bit more, two of the subregions have experienced growth. But the other three subregions were in decline. And those subregions that were in decline with five states, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, Ag Kentucky do that, they lost at least 3% of their population. But where's everybody going? I, I don't know. Well, apparently they're going to southern Appalachia because Southern Appalachia's growth actually surpassed the national average, reaching 8.6%. Certain counties in Appalachia, Georgia, grew by 14.8%. So you can see there's a dramatic growth in southern Appalachia, not so much in central and northern Appalachia. But I just thought those were interesting numbers. One, that overall growth was up, but just where the growth was was uh, coming from. Very interesting, Will. <laughs> yeah, you sound you sound enthused. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I hate to
0: see our Appalachians leaving where i live but you know at least they're staying in appalachia speaking of growth in appalachia one of the things that's not really growing this is in regards to health care Throughout Appalachia region, but really rural healthcare. And I I saw a report that said that more than 600 rural hospitals—that's 30 percent—were at high risk of shutting down. But this article that I read was about a private investor that's trying to build a a for-profit hospital in Patrick County, Virginia, population of 17,000, that just lost one of its hospitals. He's coming in as a private investor to try to. Build a new hospital. He, there was also a report that came out that while a lot of rural hospitals are shutting down, it was found that for profit hospitals were much more successful in opening and running rural hospitals than nonprofits. So oh, it wow. just goes to show you while some investors may shy away because a lot of rural hospitals are, are closing down, they can be su- successful in rural areas, which I think is an important point to point out, especially when you're talking about the investment community and trying to open or reopen some of these hospitals. Yeah, that is an interesting point. Well, we know uh, firsthand on uh, areas where hospitals have really struggled in the past. And, you know, that, that's probably a great example of how they can flourish. So maybe some more additional studies need to be done on that particular area of West Virginia. Yeah, it's foresight health. If you want to check it out, we got a kind of unique show today because it's the tail end of suicide prevention month. We're going to jump back into mental health. Yeah, well, this this uh this episode could could bring a lot of uh a lot of answers to a lot of different questions that a lot of people have, and we've got some great representatives to answer those questions. But speaking of mental health, I did see that. You know who Megan the Stallion is? I think that's what the kids call her these days. Meg the Stallion? Yeah. She's the one that says, burr, burr. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I cannot confirm. I cannot <laughs> confirm that. <laughs> I don't know if she is or not. But she is actually a big advocate of mental health. And she just started a website, maybe. Earmuffs for the kids out there, but her website's called <laughs> Bad Bitches Have Bad Days, too. So that's the name of her website. But it actually offers visitors to her website a diverse list of free therapy organizations, various crisis help helplines and places to find substance abuse help, among other resources. I think it's pretty cool in regards to advocacy towards mental health and kind of apropos for the show that we're having today. I can't believe you just gave Meg the Stallion a a shout out. (sighs) (laughs) It's for the kids, man. It's for the kids. All right. Cool. Well, yeah, well, without further ado, man, let's 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 get into it. Let's tell our listeners who the guests that we're having on. This is this episode's a little bit different. I feel like it's a awesome episode to end. Like I mentioned, suicide prevention month. We're actually gonna have a two-part episode. We're having students from the doctoral program in clinical psychology from Appalachian State. So they are in their third year that will eventually become clinical psychologists that focus on rural or underserved areas, which I think is a cool aspect to this program. Yeah, Yeah. we'll we'll probably have to split this episode up into two episodes just for the sake of time, but a lot of great information on here. And I'm thankful that they took the time out of their schedules to join us. All right, you want to get board. them on here? Yes, sir. Let's do it. Uh, today on the show, we have a, a little different setup. It's a follow-up to our mental health focus that we had a couple of weeks ago and healthcare access in general. We have Dr. Lisa Curtin with a PhD in clinical psychology. She's on the faculty at Appalachian State University and head of the doctoral program in clinical psychology, training practitioners in the field of psychology. Also joining us today with Dr. Curtin is the entire third year cohort of doctoral students and that includes Kelly Davis, Kim Holt, Esther Kilius, Shayla Moniz, Shraddha Salani, and Maggie Johnson, formerly Maggie Witherspoon. The little time that you guys do have, we appreciate you joining our show and spending it with us. So thank you for being here.
3: Thanks for
0: having us. We will kick it off like we do most of our shows. And I don't know if anyone has listened to the episode, but as most Appalachians are big on tradition, we're big on tradition too. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays, usually this huge spread, bigger than the actual meal. So we'll go around the room and ask everyone just what's your favorite appetizer or holiday dish?
3: I'll go ahead and get us started. I love fried green tomatoes, although they can be kind of seasonal. But then I'll go with a good tomato
4: pie as a backup. Esther? um, Definitely like spinach and artichoke dip or like a close second or like Thai would be like guacamole and chips.
0: You can't go wrong with a dip. Kelly, do you have a favorite?
4: Yeah, I'm with Esther. I like
5: uh, salsa and chips. Can't beat it.
0: Simple, but good. Maggie?
5: I was going to say spinach
6: artichoke dip. But now the thunder's been stolen. So I'll go with my close second, which are the little smokies that people make in a crockpot. Oh, yeah, nice. Delicious.
2: Um, Mine is a little different. So it's like a traditional dish from India, specifically from Mumbai. It's called Vardapao, which is like, I don't know if any of you have tried it before, but it's like fried potatoes dipped in dough and then a lot of spices with like bread on it. And it just reminds me of home and something I grew up eating. Nice. It has to be spicy. That's the.
0: Main <laughs> <favorite>. <laughs> I'm with you there. I like the spice. Shayla.
7: For me, it would be plantains either in chip form, fried, baked. It doesn't matter my grandmother's Cuban and she always make me some good plantains for us for family dinners.
0: Nice. Kim.
7: So I grew up here
1: in Appalachia and Appalachia. So for me. We never really caught it appetizers, but it was just like what was there in the spread, which was always deviled eggs. So I feel like when you're having a party, that's kind of what you always have to have is deviled eggs. However, my husband, who's not from here, would say you need your like cheese and your olives and your crackers. So I typically have that when I'm at my husband's family. And then my family, there has to be some deviled eggs. So.
0: Yeah, Neil eats about 14 deviled eggs before we even start dinner.
1: They're hard to beat.
0: So now that we have that question out of the way, you know, we wanted to have you on this program as a follow up, like I mentioned to the mental health episode that we had. We had a couple episodes on mental health just in general in Appalachia, but also the mental health stigma and that stigma that surrounds mental health, you know, we'd like to discuss that in a bit, but also discuss just healthcare access in general in Appalachia or lack thereof. So, Dr. Curtin, maybe we can just ask you to tell us a little bit about the doctoral program at App State and what sets it apart from other programs.
3: Sure. So we started the doctoral program four years ago, and it was largely in response to seeing that we had a lot of unmet needs. Mental health needs in the area, in rural areas as a whole, and in Appalachia specifically. We also had had, we were building upon a longstanding master's program in clinical psychology, but one of the problems with master's level practitioners, at least in North Carolina, is that they can't practice independently. They need to be supervised by a doctoral level psychologist. And so we found that our program as a master's program wasn't really meeting the needs of the region because we didn't have access to doctoral level supervisors. So we decided that we needed to be part of the solution and to grow a mental health workforce. And so that was kind of the genesis of the program. A few things that kind of set our program apart One, we're a PsyD program, not a Ph.D. program, and a PsyD program is also a doctoral program in clinical psychology, but it has a heavier focus on training practitioners, whereas many Ph.D. programs have a heavier emphasis on research. Now, with that being said, our program also has a heavy emphasis on research. So unlike most ID programs, our students do both a thesis and a dissertation as kind of independent research projects. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is there's kind of a lack of research that guides practice in rural areas and trying to understand kind of how to take our knowledge base and apply it to a unique area such as Appalachia. And then the second is that when you're in rural areas and you're practicing, oftentimes psychologists are called upon to help the community use their resources wisely because there often aren't many. And so we're often called upon to help a community identify certain needs and we'll need to use kind of research methodologies to ascertain what those needs are. And then also to evaluate programs and see how well we're doing at meeting those needs. And so I think those are some unique features. Some others are that we have a unique rural training mission. And that starts at kind of selecting our students. And you see many of them here with us today. Um, These are students who convinced us and I think um, have a very genuine interest in serving rural communities and other underserved communities. And so we start with just kind of recruitment and who we select for a good match for our program. Other things are our program is very much a generalist program. Every single student will work with both adults and children, whether they want to or not. And they may have a preference for working with one or the other, but we do make sure that all of our students are trained as generalists because oftentimes you're going to be the only psychologist in a community and so you have to be able to serve that whole community. So we don't have specialized tracks in our training whereas a lot of programs will have an adult track or a child track or a medical track or an assessment track. Our students have to kind of do all of it. Our Curriculum is a little bit unique too. We have a lot of emphasis on um, working with the community. And so we have, we require a community psychology course of all of our students. We also really want people to be able to kind of work in the general healthcare system. And so we have a health psychology behavioral medicine course that is also kind of important. And we have seven semesters of required practicum placements. And so we take a lot of pride in making sure that all of our students work in the rural community as their training. So one year, at least, of that training has to be in kind of a agency that serves the local rural community. So That's I think there's at least a handful of things.
0: What drew me to your program, to wanting really to have you guys on the show, I just love that aspect that App State saw the problem, saw the need. In regards to access to mental health care services throughout the region of Appalachia, especially in the rural areas, and you focus on that and you train students to perform in rural areas, I think that's incredibly important, not only to your program, but also to the communities throughout Appalachia. So I want to commend you for that, but also maybe we can just ask the students, you know, you specifically chose to apply to Appalachia State but maybe you can just tell us where you're from why you chose psychology in general and why you chose the program at Appalachia State. We'll start with Esther.
4: So, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up kind of going um, vacationing every summer in the Maggie Valley area in the Smokies. I loved that area and it kind of became like a second home and I would always want to like spend more time there. And I'd always be sad to go back home to Ohio. <laughs> but um, okay. I came to app for undergrad. And I was interested in psychology, because I was just fascinated with, like, I just really enjoyed listening to people. And psychology is kind of a career where if you can get far enough and get to, you know, the point where I'm at now, there's hope that you could listen to people for a a job. (laughs) So I was also drawn obviously to this program because since I had experience with the faculty here in undergrad, I really kind of just fell in love with the idea of having a program here that serves a really big purpose. So I I just thought that was really cool. And um, I did an internship at a homeless shelter in Boone, and that really opened my eyes to the need and kind of a want to be able to serve somewhere where I feel like I might actually be fulfilling a role that was unmet. It's great. Maggie? Uh, yeah, so I am from Ashe
6: County, North Carolina, and have lived there all my life, except for the four years that I lived in Boone, where I also did my undergrad at App State, and as a psychology major there, and getting to know some of the clinical faculty in my classes as an undergrad, I really kind of vibed with them, and then the mission of the program to serve underserved areas was really important to me because growing up around here, I saw how much of an impact mental health could have on friends and family when it was unnoticed or untreated or ignored, things like that. And so I think I was just really drawn to a setting
7: where I could work where I grew up and then eventually hopefully give back to my community in that way. Great, Shayla. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I decided to enter psychology and become a therapist partially because of some family and personal history with mental health issues. But I also attended to serve as the mediator between family members and friends. So it kind of seemed like a, a good fit for me. I was actually attended App State for my undergrad as well. I wasn't sure on whether I'd come back from my doctorate program, but I ultimately decided to because of the focus on underserved communities. I had uh, worked at an inpatient facility in Florida for about a year, and that opened my eyes to kind of the need for care in lower income, rural, and other underserved communities before it gets to the point of hospitalization. So that's
1: what drew me here.
0: That's great, Kim.
7: Yes. So I grew up here actually in Todd
1: area. So I've lived here my whole life. I actually live in Sugar Grove now. I actually came back to school after, you know, having a career doing accounting. And just because I was working at a local school. And really saw the need. I was working with guidance counselors, social workers, and it really opened my eyes just to the need that we had, especially in the schools and with our youth, and knew that I wanted to go into the helping field, but wasn't really sure if psychology was was that until, again, working with those individuals and seeing the need and seeing the difference that they actually made in students' lives and recognizing that that's an area where we need to start, right? So when we think about preventative care, if we can start when individuals are young, maybe we can help reduce some more severe psychopathology later in the future. So I think the biggest thing that drew me to the program here, obviously is the mission to work with rural individuals underserved. And I want to stay here. I'm same goal as Maggie. I want to practice here and give back to my community. So it really just fit very well with, with my goal and my future goal as, as you know, a clinician.
0: Perfect. Shrada.
2: Yeah. So I am actually from Mumbai, India. So I was an international student, one of the biggest things I'm gonna go back and forth because they all go together in terms of what drew me into psychology and this program specifically. Specifically, there's a huge stigma about mental health in India. And even though I grew up in a city, the city culture is pretty similar to here because we've lack of access to certain things, just given like it being a third world co- country and everything. So I kind of grew up around knowing that, you know, mental health was very stigmatized. And that's why I didn't learn much about that. But when I came to the US to start my education here, I actually started off as pre-med major and kind of took some psych classes as like just basic classes and fell in love with it because I understood how much the mental health and physical health can kind of align together and how working on your mental health can actually improve your physical health. So kind of got more interested in that. And also just because I want to go back to India and practice eventually, you know, kind of practicing in a rural setting, which is more similar to what the culture and how it's seen in India is very similar. I kind of applied here and was drawn to this program and also just working with the underserved population because that is predominantly the Indian population as well.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting aspect. One, one that we could touch on a little little later on. But Kelly, do you want to say why you chose EPSAE?
5: Sure, I'm from Trinity, North Carolina, which is in the Piedmont Tran region in uh, North Carolina. It's a pretty small town. As far as my interest in psychology, it's very similar to everyone's reasons here. I was always interested in understanding human behavior, and then also seeing how mental health like played out personally in like family and friends, and also seeing how stigmatized it is uh, back home. Kind of drew me to psychology. What drew me to this program specifically was during my undergrad, I was a Golden Leaf scholar. And we had conferences twice a year to go over kind of problems in rural and economically impoverished counties in North Carolina. And that kind of furthered my interest in working in a rural area. And App State was a perfect fit for that.
0: I think all of you spoke to the access issue in rural areas. So, uh, you know, when you graduate from this program, are there opportunities for, I mean, do you have to go into private practice or how does that work? Are there opportunities for you throughout the region if anybody wants to jump in?
1: I think it depends too. We've, we've discussed this in our class and thinking about, um, I would like to be integrated into the school system and at some level. However, there's not a lot of positions available for licensed clinical psychologists to work in the school. So um, there is limited um, availability for those. I think they're wanting to kind of be integrated into the school. And I think that just speaks to grants and, and what are ways that we can help, you know, kind of develop those jobs for us because they're just not there. You know, private practice will probably be an area personally for me that I feel like I'll probably have to go unless some of those positions kind of open up. I think we're a little limited in rural areas.
3: Kim brings up kind of an important point in terms of the role of advocacy of psychologists in rural areas and in other underserved communities where you might have to kind of help build it yourself. And um, we try to build advocacy skills in our students and kind of like we were saying, you know, we've had those discussions. One place where students, well, psychologists or future psychologists in this room um, may get employed would be federally qualified health centers where they have to integrate into primary care um, behavioral health services for that kind of funding. And so there's kind of a move to have more of those kinds of positions. Sometimes there are local hospitals, but the infrastructure and the support for positions can be limited in rural areas, especially with our kind of fee-for-service healthcare system. And then we have community-based mental health centers. Psychologists tend to be a little bit more expensive than some other providers sometimes. And so that can be hard, but private practice can be an option as well. And we've got a number of private practitioners in our area, many who don't practice full time and there's huge needs.
0: Totally understandable. And it's a room full of doctors, right? Not only clinicians, but this is a room full of future doctors. (laughs) True. (laughs) So uh, we understand that you do a practicum during your time in the program. How important is it for the students as well as the communities that you're in? Maybe Shrada, you you could speak to that.
2: Yeah, so, and everyone can chime in also in terms of like talking about the specifics. But generally, the practicum is really for our experience to have more hands on experience. So we're getting a lot of, we're learning a lot of interventions and a lot of different things. And this is our time to kind of practice so it tends to be a very important part of this whole process and becoming better clinicians in this area and we have a lot of options actually Dr. Curtin kind of mentioned that there's one that we have to do and that is the psychology clinic so that is a community-based clinic that actually runs from the AS like our App State University itself and we kind of serve the community here because a lot of times there's a lack of clinicians taking Medicaid and Medicare and our professor or the clinical psychologist here are actually licensed in that. So they're able to supervise us while we work with that. And as we know, in the rural communities, that is sometimes Medicaid and Medicare are the big insurances used. So we get to really work with the community members and serve them in that way. And it's a lot of like assessments that we do, psychological assessments, as well as therapy. That's one of the practicums and that's the one that we have to do. But we do have a lot of other options to work with the community. Community. One of the ones that some of the, my colleagues have already worked with is, it, they're called the Ask centers. And that's like integrating mental health services into school system directly. So that kind of reduces the problems with access that sometimes students might have, kind of reduces the stigma too, because it's kind of into the school, so integrated into the school system. So it's a really good opportunity for us to, who are interested in working with kids can work there. And then we do have other ones like the Counseling Center at App State is one of the options. Another one is high country community health. And that is the one that Dr. Curtin kind of mentioned earlier as well, which is the one that is federally qualified. So we also are kind of serving the community and meeting their needs. And then Dr. Curtin is awesome at kind of understanding our needs and what we want in our training and what we're interested in. So she will advocate for like other sites that we might be interested in in order to like get better practice.
0: That's great. Is the practicum, is it a full year?
2: Yes, it tends to be a full year.
0: One thing that you mentioned earlier, Shrada, just kind of the similarities between the communities in India, whether it be a city and the communities, some of the rural communities in Appalachia. So, and one of the things that we've come to understand on this podcast is that whether it's Appalachia or regions outside of Appalachia, we've found many more similarities than we've found differences, no matter where they are. And while the focus of your program at App is on the rural areas or the underserved areas. We know that problems in Appalachia, such as poverty, lack of education, a history of economic trauma, those are not lost on Appalachia and they're very similar to urban communities of color. So how does that factor into your training? I know you focus on the rural and kind of a generalized teaching process, but could you also use what you learn at App State in urban inner city areas are there similarities there, and does your training support that?
1: I'll jump in. I think that one of the great things about our training is we're trained to look at an individual as a whole person, right? So taking into context their culture, maybe their religious beliefs, the the context of you know their family dynamic. So. I think that's one really great piece of this program is we're really trained, again, like I said, to look at every individual uniquely and look at the context of their situation and what is it that's bringing them into the therapy room or the assessment room and really looking at that. So, you know, I think being able to work in a rural area just makes you more aware. That individuals are diverse. No matter what culture, what background, where you come from, we're all unique in our own way. And practicing here just makes us more aware of that. So we're more cognizant of that when we're in a therapy session and realizing that those are all really important. So when we're conceptualizing, thinking about our case conceptualization, we take all of those into account. So I feel like it really does prepare us to work with different populations, diverse populations. And that's my take on it. I don't know if anybody else wants to kind of chime in.
4: Yeah, yeah, I definitely had some thoughts as well and I know that there are some other people in my program that have focused more on like minority populations than I have, but I definitely know that in the program, though, we could always use more information on different settings, different cultures, people with different backgrounds, different levels of SES, you name it. One thing that I feel like we have been taught pretty strongly is to build our own self-awareness. Most of the time, I feel like we're um, hoping to try to teach other people how to take perspectives, but that means to be able to teach that, we need to know it and understand it a lot better. Um, And we often talk about having humility when we come into a new case. Peace. In addition to that, it's a nice, fun balance of I I can't rely on clinical judgment. I can't label someone without really taking into account all of the factors that Kim mentioned. I can have humility while also doing some homework and having some background of like, okay, like what what is this person's background and how that might influence my interaction and what kind of perspective I need may need to hold into account. And obviously, biases is something that comes up pretty frequently in the conversation of different working with different populations and we know we can't eliminate our biases they're there for a reason but we know that we can be aware of them and watch them and just put that into practice the same way we would teach a client maybe to take perspective to help their own mental health. So using our own practices for sure.
6: I actually had something else to add to. So Dr. Curtin mentioned it earlier, how our program focuses on a more generalist perspective rather than specializing. And also how, um, even though we are a sid program, there's still a heavy research aspect to that. And so I think Because going into a rural community, we need to have a really strong skill in researching interventions and how certain symptoms or disorders or whatever it may be affect different populations and different demographics. And so I feel like that strong research background that we're trained in would really be helpful in a lot of different populations, even if it's not rural, because we just have resources and the ability to access them and navigate those to help us branch out for whatever we may come across.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I don't want to get bogged down on numbers because I'm obviously not the expert in the room, (laughs) but just in regards to access, you know, as I mentioned before, all of you have spoken in regards to access and the lack thereof throughout Appalachia, but there was a recent mental health America report that came out in regards to access and it suggested that 56% of adults with mental illness receive no treatment and even higher among youth it's even higher in rural areas as well. Of the remaining individuals that seek treatment, almost 25% are not able to receive treatment needed because of the access issues. And so I just wanted to ask, what are some of the barriers to access in rural areas? Kelly?
5: Yeah, we definitely kind of touched on them throughout, but it's been conceptualized in the literature base. They call them the four A's. So accessibility, affordability. Availability and acceptability. So accessibility kind of looks at overall can you get to services? Are they available for you? in general. that could involve transportation barriers. Knowing how to navigate the mental health care system is also not easy. So um, knowing who and where to get services. In addition, as we've already kind of touched on, providers are often few and far between in rural areas. So there may be like longer wait times for appointments or uh, providers may not be taking new clients, which can prevent access. And then also Sometimes it's challenging to find providers that may understand the community they serve in because there's uh, fewer programs that have a rural focus or kind of attend to that aspect of an individual's identity. So finding culturally appropriate services could be a barrier as far as access. In addition, we've already touched on the affordability piece. Services can be very expensive, especially if an individual is underinsured or uninsured. And like Shraddha mentioned earlier, certain types of insurances may not be accepted because of like low reimbursement rates. So it may be harder for clinics to serve certain populations if they can't be paid in full. So it's an affordability issue on part of the clinic and on part of the patient or client. And then we've touched on the availability piece already. Just are there providers in the area that can provide a service And that kind of touches back on our generalist uh, training, especially because specialists are pretty low in rural areas. And we have also talked about the acceptability piece of services. There's a huge stigma towards mental health in uh, many areas, especially rural areas. And also, it may be harder to remain anonymous while seeking services, especially if people see you out in the community at a mental health provider's office and uh, you just may have left less privacy, which discourages people from reaching out or attending services because they can't keep that aspect private. And also, lastly, there are already great support networks within rural areas to serve individual support or comfort in times of distress like family friends pastoral care so looking at those uh, working together is sometimes a barrier making sure that mental health providers are accepted within the community and have the community's trust could also provide a barrier if that's not the case
0: you touched on the availability piece which is Part of what your program is doing to try to combat that availability piece, but there is that cost piece. Does anyone have any ideas or can speak to what the region or what rural areas are doing in regards to the cost aspect of services?
3: kind of a huge issue and one that I don't think we have an easy solution to, but I'll just share a few thoughts and they're not just my own. Our healthcare system, if you think about kind of rural areas, you're serving fewer people across a larger base (laughs) and the infrastructure, it can be very hard and we don't have a lot of money going towards building infrastructure. Like we've got a lot of rural hospitals closing, for example, and we've heard more and more about that throughout the COVID pandemic. And so we have really kind of a fee-for-service healthcare system that doesn't support infrastructure. And so I'm a big believer in we need policies and legislation that kind of address that and to be able to not just provide on the very few people that do need care. And we see higher rates of morbidity and mortality in rural areas. In the Appalachian region, um, you know we've got higher than average numbers of deaths due to what they call diseases of despair. And those are overdoses, liver disease, primarily related to um, alcohol, but also can be related to um, infections and suicide. And if we continue on our path of you know, fee for service, then we won't have kind of the infrastructure to be able to provide the much needed care to a very large percentage of our population overall, about 20% of our overall population that serves the entire nation and is underserved. And I think it's really the infrastructure needs to be addressed.
0: That's a really good point. And I don't think that's just mental health, that's healthcare in general throughout Rural America, especially in Appalachia.
3: Exactly. And you know, even our healthcare system oftentimes distinguishes between physical health and mental health, and they're so intricately related. I mean, look at something like, you know, heart disease or diabetes as more medical illnesses. They have behaviors that go along with them and high rates of depression that go along with heart disease that make for worse courses. Same thing with cancer. So it's not just an either or, it's a both and.
0: Yeah. You mentioned advocacy earlier, but I think advocating for people to understand that a little bit better will go a long way in regards to the stigma of mental health. You know, we live in a region that's often stereotyped. I think we've said it a million times on this, on this show, but that in itself is painful and demoralizing for people. Uh, couple that with, like I mentioned, the stigma of mental health care and access in rural areas, just as practitioners, since we have you all on the episode, how hard is it for mental health providers in rural areas, even for your own mental health? <laughs>
1: even just working in the school systems through our ask centers just seeing the the stigma right around mental health you know and recognizing that we do have individuals that are seeking services however it may be that you know, stigma is associated. Therefore, we have adolescents who are not receiving services because of the stigma, as well as, you know, family members, right? we see a lot of generational trauma and things that in a lot of rural areas. So I feel like stigma is definitely there. I think a great way to, to, to kind of address that is like with the Ask Center, it's integrated into the school system. So it helps reduce that stigma. So being able to, you know, go to having therapy throughout your day, like in a class, just in your regular schedule. So, you know, attending therapy when you're at school, it it really kind of helps reduce that. So I think it's one way to kind of address that barrier, but oftentimes seeing that stigma and again, thinking about integrative care. So having those pieces of, you know, having mental health providers integrated in like high high health, you know, being able to go there and seek services as well as receiving treatments. So it's, it's definitely something that we see.
3: I would also kind of add on to what Kim is saying that when you think about kind of the social, political, economic determinants of health and how much of a role that plays in our communities, if we don't address those, it's going to be an uphill battle. This is not just a kind of individual level pathology-driven issue. This is um, much larger than that, and we've got to be able to address some of those things before we'll be able to kind of make a dent. That would be a prevention, and it's always going to be better to prevent problems than to wait until they get really bad. And kind of what Shayla was saying, that she was driven by her experience in an inpatient hospital, there's some evidence that oftentimes people in more rural areas that have limited access to services and may have some of These other kinds of issues like stigma may wait for things to get really bad before they do seek services. And prevention can go a long way
5: in that.
0: Uh, So, Maggie, um, in what ways is the mental health care system trying to overcome the stigma of mental health?
5: Yeah,
6: especially in rural areas, because there tends to be a really strong sense of community. But with that comes more of a guarded nature, I guess, against outsiders coming in. So especially a psychologist or, you know, someone that may be in a stigmatized position just because mental illness itself is stigmatized. So integrating into the community is one thing to gain the trust and to become a part of it rather than just an outsider, because a lot of people in rural communities have this culture of reluctance for seeking help for mental illness issues, just because they're not physical. Like you can't look at a body part and see that that's what's th- where the issue lies. It's, it's all internal. And so seeking help for that may seem like someone is weak or that they can't take care of themselves, which self-sufficiency is so important in rural areas. One of the big ways to help reduce that barrier that stigma has for seeking mental health treatment is working to integrate mental health professionals or clinicians into primary care offices. So rather than the discomfort someone might feel of walking into a specialty clinic for substance use concerns or something specifically for mental health, going to see your primary care doctor, your family doctor, is not nearly as scary. It can be more inviting, I guess. So having mental health professionals within primary care offices can really help reduce stigma and also increase access for people. And then just in general, just educating the community uh, because a lot of it is just a lack of knowledge, mental health awareness in general. So outreach to the community.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You know, you mentioned the culture of Appalachia and we have such a strong independent culture, close tight-knit family, tight-knit communities. We often distrust outsiders quite a bit. We have this mindset to not only talk about our problems, but definitely not go get care for mental health. That being said, how does the culture of Appalachia, I know all of you aren't from the region, but how does the culture of Appalachia affect the care or the way that you treat patients in the region?
6: Something that immediately comes to mind for me is the ethical difference in how we practice. So we're trained specifically to watch out for like multiple relationships or dual relationships with people. So if we see them in a therapy context, then you wouldn't want that person to also be a family member or a friend or um, a co-worker, someone who you have another close and interactive relationship with, just because that can cross a boundary and make the treatment less effective, make your other interaction awkward and crosses a lot of lines. But in a rural community, that's not really easy to do because you it's a small, close-knit community. And so you right. still everywhere, in the grocery store, in the bank, at the festival on Saturday or whatever, learning to navigate those ethical boundaries and learning how to adjust your own expectations that not everything is going to be so cut and dry with your expectations for ethics is, I think, something that I've definitely thought about just because I'm from here.
3: (laughs) I've got a little bit of a story that just happened yesterday and today. So I place all of our students throughout the community at their practicum sites. And I went to see my primary care doctor yesterday, and he recently sold his practice to an um, agency that I'm placing students in. <laughs> and so our students are there providing services, um, behavioral health services. And I saw my student, and I was anticipating my doctor is getting ready to retire, that to kind of manage that dual relationship, I was going to switch doctors. Um, Because he was going to retire, I'd switch at least, you know, practices. So I would be someplace else. But oftentimes I think like, good luck with that. And it's not going to work because my doctor's deciding not to retire now. (laughs) And I like my doctor. I've been seeing my doctor for 25 years. (laughs) So now I need to kind of manage that potential conflict. And um, so, you know, I talk to the student and just kind of acknowledge that we have that. And how do we manage that? I will not be referred to her for anything. And I talked to my doctor about my students being placed there, kind of how records are kept for my own privacy, for the students' comfort. Basically, the students will see that I've gotten doctor's appointment that day, but they won't know what it's for or anything like that. And I'm not going to be spying on my students while I'm there either, (laughs) you know? But that is a small rural community. If you don't know what you had for breakfast, ask somebody else because they'll be able to tell you.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a very good point. Real man, a lot of great deep information. You know how I am, uh, we Get a bunch of smart people together. I'm just a sponge. So uh, I was just kind of taking it all in and trying to get as much insight as I can. And uh, very interesting stuff, though. I think it was uh, important to hear from them because they are paving the way for mental health access in rural areas, especially in the Appalachian region. I mentioned before that I think that's a tremendous aspect to the program at App State of how they focus on underserved communities and how their training is focused on putting clinical psychologists in those areas where access is important.
2: Yeah, and anything
0: we can do, of course, to highlight those areas and bring light to situations is kind of what our role is. And I'm grateful that they decided to come on our show and tell our listeners more about what's going on. So I'm hoping that this will be a a good foundation for folks learning more about their program. And the services that they will provide, you know, once they graduate, you know, obviously we know how busy doctoral students are and we want to really thank them again for taking the time to speak with us, to tell us one about their program, but really to talk about the issues in regards to mental health, in regards to the stigma of mental health, of how we can combat that, but also you know, how we can combat the access issue in Appalachia, not only for mental health services, but just healthcare in general. Yes, sir. And we did want to also mention again that this is going to be a two-part episode. They had a lot of information, a lot of discussion in regards to those topics. So we're going to split it up into two episodes. Next week, we will have the follow-up episode, the ending of the discussion with the students and Dr. Curtin, and you can hear the end of that next week. Stay tuned, man. Stay tuned. Will, so do you have an app visit of the week for me this week? Yeah, now I do. Uh, it has to do with mental health. You know, we've covered this important topic a lot, obviously on this episode, obviously on the follow-up episode next week. It's the end of Suicide Prevention Week so, month. So... As part of that, I wanted to highlight one organization, a social enterprise in the southern tier of New York. It is Father Bernard's Blessed Biscuits. It's a social enterprise operated by St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Jamestown, New York, which is one of the community partners of the Mental Health Association in Chautauqua County, New York. Uh, a countywide chapter of the national nonprofit offers a variety of treatment, recovery, and re-entry, and reentry programs. But they partner with Bernard, Father Bernard's Blessed Biscuits. They help people suffering from addiction and mental il- illness re-enter the workforce. They just received an ARC grant to help with those with what they've already been doing. But they allow people to work for this social enterprise, which. They make and sell dog biscuits. It's a pretty cool website. If you want to check it out, it's fatherbernards.com. That's F-A-T-H-E-R-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-S.com. So you can order directly from there. I don't think they have them in stores, but they do ship worldwide. Check it out, Will. It's a heavenly blessing for a pet and a community. Good deal, Well, Will, it's been another great episode. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how Me neither We'll leave that to her But I guess we can end it like we usually do Till next time Peace I'm
4: up in the mountains again I'm getting lighter The air's getting thin Now I'm facing down With a grin i City too long, sidewalks and buildings, and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong
1: in the mountains.